Morning, brothers and sisters. Our scripture reading, which is the passage that uh, Pastor Tyler is going to be preaching on this morning, it's Genesis 38. So if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 32. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me and follow along as I read Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, 
What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning. Um, if you are new with us or if you haven't been here in a while, uh, we're currently in a series um, in the book of Genesis. So we took a break from Genesis over the summer, but last week Pastor Chris picked, up, picked um, back up with chapter 37. One verse to draw your attention to in that chapter is verse 2. So there it says, These are the generations of Jacob. Now, Pastor Chris point, pointed that out last week, and it bears repeating now. The phrase, these are the generations of, is, is actually used throughout Genesis. It's used throughout Genesis to tell us who's going to be the focus of the section at hand. And here, um, and, and this section runs through the end of the book. It'll take us all the way through chapter 50. The spotlight is on Jacob's family. It's on his sons, and most particularly two sons, Joseph and then, as we saw in our passage today, Judah. Now, if you were here last week, you know that things have gotten off to a terrible start. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He wasn't the firstborn in the family, but he was the first child who was born to Joseph's favorite wife, um, who's deceased at this point, Rachel. And, and because of this, because of Joseph's, or because of uh, Jacob's obvious favoritism toward Joseph, his brothers hate him for it. And their hatred and jealousy of Joseph only grows uh, when they uh, hear from Joseph about dreams that he had, that dreams where he was reigning over them, um, and dreams that he perhaps unwisely shared with them. Well, in chapter 37, uh, long story short, the brothers unfortunately end up taking advantage of an opportunity they have. They throw Joseph into a pit or a cistern, and they leave him for dead. Now, secretly, Reuben, who's the firstborn son of Jacob, was planning to rescue Joseph and bring Joseph back to his father. But as the brothers were sitting down to lunch, and evidently Reuben must not have been there at that point, and keep in mind at that point, they're sitting down to lunch, and Joseph is in a pit um, some Ishmaelites approach. Uh, they approach the area. And Judah, the fourth-born fourth son of Jacob, he suggests selling Joseph for a prophet. And so again, with the exception of Reuben, who doesn't seem to have been there right then, the brothers go with Judah's plan. They, they, they sell Joseph, uh, and then later they, they all together go back and they deceive Jacob. They, they make him think that his son, his favorite son, was killed by an animal. This, as hard as it may be to believe, is the covenant family of God. God had graciously given wonderful promises. He had given uh, promises of blessing, of offspring, of land to a man named Abraham. And then later he extended those promises to Abraham's son, a man named Isaac. And then later, he extended those promises to Jacob, uh, Isaac's son. But now, as has previously been the case in Genesis, things look bleak for this family. Uh, they look bleak for this family as they seem to be just on this downward spiral into sin. So let's just review for a minute before we jump into chapter 38, what we've learned about Jacob's family, particularly the first uh, four sons. So in chapter 35 of Genesis, after Rachel dies, Reuben, who's the firstborn son of Jacob, he loses his birthright because he sleeps with Bilhah. That's Rachel's servant in Jacob's concubine. So that's Reuben, the firstborn. In chapter 34, when Dinah, Jacob's daughter, is sexually assaulted by Shechem, Simeon and Levi who are Jacob's second and third sons, are rightly, rightly outraged. They're outraged. But they sin when they take matters into their own hands, use circumcision, 
which is the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, they use that to deceive and weaken the men in Shechem City, and then they kill all of the men in the city, and they capture their animals, their wealth, their children, and their wives. So that's the first three sons of Jacob. And then as we said in chapter 37, Judah, Jacob's fourth-born son, he's the one who comes up with the idea to sell his brother for a profit. And then he goes along with the plan to deceive his father and make him think that Joseph was killed by an animal. What good can come from this? Given the behavior of Jacob's sons, can anything good come from his family? Can anything good come from Israel? How in the world are God's promises going to continue through this messed up, divided family? It may not seem like it at first, but Genesis 38 actually has something to say about that. The, this chapter, it breaks from the narrative about Joseph, and it centers on Judah, and it centers on Judah's daughter-in-law, a woman named Tamar. Now, unfortunately, things are going to get worse, a lot worse, before they get better. Sin is on full, just ugly display in this chapter. There's no denying it. But God's grace and his mercy are also at work here. And so we'll see that, I hope, as we work our way through this chapter. And we're going to do so in three points. Our first point is going to be deception and injustice. Point two is exposure and vindication. And then point three is provision and hope. So let's start with that first point, deception and injustice. This is uh, verses 1 to 11. So as we've said, chapter 37 ends with Judah coming up with the idea to sell Joseph for a prophet. And then with his brothers, he deceives Jacob into thinking that Joseph is dead. And now chapter 38 begins with Judah continuing down this dark, rebellious path. So verses 1 and 2, they say that, that when Judah went down from his brothers, he turned aside to a certain uh, Canaanite and a Julamite named Hera and married a woman who's only described here as the daughter of a certain Canaanite named Shua. So Judah leaves his family. He, he, he leaves the family to whom God had given his covenant promises and he lives among the Canaanites. Like, that's a bad trajectory. It's a bad trajectory if we know our Old Testament and, and, and what God says to his people about intermingling with the Canaanites and how they'll draw their affection away from God. And that's a bad trajectory when you consider the family history. In Genesis 24, 1-4, Abraham, he makes his servant swear that he won't take a wife for his son Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites. In Genesis 28, 1-5, Isaac tells Jacob not to take a wife from the Canaanite women. And strikingly, Genesis 36.2 says that Esau, who is Isaac's firstborn, he's Jacob's brother who gave away his birthright for a bowl of stew, Esau, he did take wives from the Canaanites. So in other words, Judah is not following the path of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the, the men to whom God had given his promises. Judah's following in the footsteps of Esau. This is not good. Well, next, the text says that Judah and his wife have three sons. Their names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And it says that Judah takes a wife for Ur named Tamar, who was also likely a Canaanite. And then verse 7 says something that's pretty jarring. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. There's no explanation, only that God puts Ur to death. He executes him because of his wickedness. This is the first time in the Bible that an individual is singled out as being executed by God because of his sin, but it won't be the last. We only have to keep reading in this chapter to find another example. So verse 8 says, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now that might sound, uh, that might sound really weird to us, uh, but, but it actually reflects a law at that time uh, called levirate marriage. 
Here's how one commentator describes it. He says, the law states that if brothers live together and if one of them is married but dies without children, one of the surviving brothers is to marry or take her as a wife and father a child with her. The child born of this levirate relationship, levir is Latin for brother-in-law, carries on the name of his deceased father and eventually inherits the family estate. A version of this actually appears in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. Uh, there, um, if a brother refuses to do this, if a brother refuses to marry his widowed sister-in-law, after speaking with the elders of his city, the text says this, his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So Onan has at least three opportunities here. First, he has an opportunity to provide offspring for his deceased brother and ensure that his name would continue on. So he has an opportunity to do right by his brother. Second, he has an opportunity to care for his widowed sister-in-law. As a childless widow, Tamar was in a vulnerable position. It was unlikely in this culture that she would remarry. And without a child to care for her, she's facing a really uncertain future. Like, what's going to happen to this woman? Well, Onan could step in and save the day, if you will. So that's his second opportunity. And then third, Onan has an opportunity to obey God's command to be fruitful and multiply and to participate in the covenant promise God gave to his people, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them innumerable offspring. Onan's got an opportunity to participate in that as part of this family line. So how does he respond? Well, to put it sensitively, verse 9 says that whenever he would sleep with Tamar, and notice that this happens on more than one occasion, it's whenever he would sleep with Tamar, he would do what was necessary to ensure that she wouldn't get pregnant. And he would do this, the text says, because he knew the offspring would not be his. He would do this so as not to give offspring to his brother. Now, don't miss how wicked and how vile this is. With Ur, the firstborn dead, Onan is now at the front of the line. He's in the front of the line as the, as the firstborn, if you will, with, with Ur dead, to receive a double portion of the family estate. But if he has a child uh, for Ur with Tamar, the child not him, the child would get the double portion. The child would receive the right of the firstborn. Evident, uh, Onan evidently doesn't want that. And so he does what he can to prevent a pregnancy. But notice what he, what he doesn't do. He does what he can to prevent a pregnancy, but he doesn't refuse to sleep with Tamar. You see, Onan could have said no. He could have said no to Judah's request. That would have been humiliating, sure, like Deuteronomy 25 shows us that. It would have been humiliating, but it was still an option. But instead, he deceptively goes along with the custom of the day, and he gratifies himself, but he doesn't obey his father. He doesn't do right by his deceased brother, he fails to care for Tamar, who at this point is now a widow without a husband or a child who is also being taken advantage of by her brother-in-law. And he potentially even shows blatant disregard for God's commands and God's covenant promise of offspring. That does not sit well with God. Verse 10 simply says, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. I think that is sobering. It's also encouraging. It's sobering because it's a stark reminder that God is the holy, just, righteous creator of the universe, and he can and he will punish sin. 
In the grand scheme of eternity, no one will get away with anything. Every sin that has ever been committed will be punished. Either you will pay for it forever in hell, or Jesus will have paid for it on the cross. And so, if you're not trusting Jesus today, like, let this be a, a warning, and let it even be a, a sweet word of good news to you. Because of your sin against God, you have earned eternal punishment for yourself. And it's going to take that long for you to pay off your sin. Because of our sin against an infinite God, it's going to take an infinite amount of time to pay that off. But the good news is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because of what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, you can be forgiven. You can be made clean. So, Forsake your sin. Turn away from it and ask Jesus to save, to save you and be your king. He will. He will do that right now, right here on the spot. It's good news. Now, for those of us who are trusting Jesus, I think this, this is sobering in that it reminds us that we must treat our sin seriously. When we become aware of it, we must turn from it. We must turn to God for forgiveness, which he will graciously provide, and we must wage war on it. In the words of John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So this is sobering, but I think it's also encouraging. If you have suffered injustice, if you have been taken advantage of, if you have been sinned against, I hope this is a, as a, gracious, a gracious word to you. I hope that it is a gracious reminder that, that God sees. God knows. God cares. And while he may not do it now, he may not even do it in your lifetime, God will avenge. He's going to avenge either by punishing the unrepentant forever in hell or he's going to avenge by having poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. But avenge he will. He cares for you. He cares about injustice. He cares for the oppressed, the oppressed like Tamar. So with the death of Onan, that's now two sons of Judah who are gone. They're dead because of their sin. Notice what Judah does next. In verse 11, he tells Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So do you see what Judah does? He essentially promises to give Tamar to Shelah in marriage when Shelah's old enough, but he sends Tamar away, perhaps with zero intent to make good on his word. And, and he does this because he was afraid that Shelah would die just like Ur and Onan died. The, the ESV study Bible points out what's happening here so clearly. It says, he treats Tamar as if she were dangerous, while it was actually the evil of the two sons that brought about their deaths. Judah missed it. He cast the blame on Tamar, this victimized woman, and he selfishly deceives her, and he sends her away to his father's house. But Tamar doesn't know it yet. She doesn't know what Judah's thinking. So she does what Judah asks. She goes and remains a widow in her father's house. This is just a mess. This is a mess. There is so much deception and injustice on the part of Onan and Judah here. And Tamar's the one who's suffering for it. These men had a duty and they had the ability to ensure that offspring would be produced for Ur and to care for this vulnerable woman. Yet, they not only did nothing, but Onan deceived her and took advantage of her, and Judah secretly blamed her, deceived her, and sent her away. It's just horrible. Just a mess. And it may not seem like it at first, but I think there's a word for us here today. As God's people, 
we must see it as our responsibility to care for the vulnerable. Just thinking of our own country, the list is long. It includes the unborn, the orphan, the widow, the disabled, the poor, the foreigner, the black persons who are victims of racism and systemic racism. And the list goes on. And seeing as how this chapter tells the story of a vulnerable woman who suffers injustice, maybe we could start. Maybe we could start there. We're in the midst of the, of the Me Too movement where women inside and outside the church are bravely exposing the sexual harassment and assault that they've experienced at the hands of men. It is our responsibility as God's people to hear them, to weep with them, to learn from them, to care for them, to be patient with them as they grieve and process, and to protect them. By God's grace, I think we're, we're seeking to do that here. For example, back in, back in June, uh, Lori Chapman and Miriam Singer, they, they led a seminar on ministry to persons who have suffered abuse and trauma. It was during the, the Sunday school hour here. We want Bethel to be a safe place for sufferers. We want this to be a place where we can learn how to respond to the injustices committed in our society. This can no doubt take many different forms and expressions given the, uh, the, the long list of oppressed in our society. It, it can at times be overwhelming to consider, but it must not lead us to inaction. The enormity of the situation must not result in us doing nothing. Instead, let's, let's start by prayerfully asking the Lord how we might play a part in caring for the vulnerable. Pastor Chris mentioned earlier, this is a community group Sunday. Let's talk with each other. Let's talk with each other today or this week, whenever your groups meet, about how we can grow as Christ-like proponents of justice in our community here, in our church, in our country, in our world. There's much to be done, and, and let's seek the Lord for his grace. Let's, let's seek the Lord for help. Genesis 38 is a dark chapter. But the story isn't over yet. Unfortunately, it's going to keep getting worse before it gets better. But eventually, light, a, a sliver of light, does break through. So let's go to our second point, exposure and vindication. This is verses 12 to 26. So after some time, Judah's wife dies. And verse 12 says that when he was comforted, he went to Hira, his Canaanite friend, to, sheep shears, to his sheep shears at Timnah. Now somebody tells this to, to Tamar, and she quickly takes action. So seeing that Shelah was grown up and that Judah hadn't given her to him in marriage, she takes off her widow's garments. She covers herself with a veil. She sits at the entrance to a place called Enaim, and she waits. She waits for Judah to come along. Now, in, in this culture, women who were in a legally binding agreement to marry someone would wear a veil uh, prior to the actual marriage. This is called the betrothal period. Now, that said, it's possible that what Tamar is doing is, is covering herself with a veil as a visible reminder to Judah when he arrives of his unfulfilled promise to give her Shayla in marriage. It's possible she's sending a message. She wants him to do something about her situation. But it's also possible that Tamar wears this veil to disguise herself, to appear to Judah as a prostitute so that she could have children through him. If that's the case, she's now the one doing the deceiving. But don't, don't miss how risky this would have been for her. If she were discovered, that, that could mean death for her. Remember, she's essentially betrothed to Shayla. What would happen to her if, if she were discovered to have been prostituting herself? This could have meant death for her. That should have said something about how desperate her situation must have been. Well, verses 15 to 16, they say that when Judah sees her, he doesn't recognize her. He thinks she's a prostitute, and he asks her to sleep with him. 
And Tamar, she, she shrewdly takes advantage of the situation. In verses 15 to 18, she asks Judah what he'll give her in exchange. And he says he'll send her a young goat from the flock. She asked Judah to give her his signet cord and staff as a pledge, like as collateral. And the signet, it was likely a seal that was attached to a cord and it would have been worn around, around the neck. And it was a, a means of identification. One author actually says that this is the equivalent, uh, quote, this is the equivalent to handing over to a stranger our driver's license and credit card. So that's what Tamar is asking of Judah. It's surprising, but Judah agrees to that. They, they sleep together. Tamar conceives, and she goes away and puts on the garment of her widowhood. She took matters into her own hands here, and she got what she was owed, a child. And meanwhile, Judah has no idea what just happened. He's totally clueless. So in verses 20 to 23, he sends Hera with a young goat, as he promised, but Hera can't find the woman. He asks the men of the place where the cult prostitute where the cult prostitute is, and, and they say, there hasn't been a cult prostitute here. He tells that to Judah, and rather than go looking for the woman, Judah says to let her keep the things as her own, lest they be laughed at. He cares too much about his reputation to be the guy going around town looking for the prostitute who still has his stuff. Well, look with me at verse, 30, or, or at verse 24. The text says here, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. That is shocking. It, it's, it's offensive for at least a couple of reasons. One, it seems overly harsh. There's provision in the Old Testament for the daughter of a priest to be burned if she profanes herself through prostitution. But that doesn't apply here. At, at most, at most, if, if Tamar is who Judah thinks she is, based on the law in Deuteronomy 22, the proper punishment would have been stoning. But it seems overly harsh how he reacts. That's one. But two, notice the double standard. Judah thinks that he can sleep with a woman he believes to be a prostitute with zero consequences. Yet, if Tamar commits adultery, remember she was bound to Shelah, if Tamar commits adultery, he says, bring her out and burn her. He views her as the cause of his son's deaths, and he's not fulfilling his obligation to raise up offspring for his deceased woman or to ensure that this woman is cared for. He has the means to provide for her and give her what she's owed, yet he's done nothing. And now, when it appears that she's the one in sin, he simply says, burn her. There's no questioning, there's no trial, there's no conversation, just burn her. It's awful. Look now at verse 25. As Tamar was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. The tables are turned. This is a really significant moment, not just for Tamar, who's getting ready to be killed, but for Judah. What's he going to do? He now knows that it was no prostitute he slept with at Enaim. It was his daughter-in-law. Will Judah deny that these items are his? Will he accuse Tamar of stealing these things and framing him? Based on the current trajectory of his life, what we know of Judah in the last two chapters, those responses might not surprise us very much. But thankfully, Judah doesn't do either of those things. Verse 26 says that he identified the, item, he identified the items and he said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Now, notice that he doesn't say Tamar is righteous. After all, she knowingly took matters into her own hands and slept with her father-in-law. The Old Testament condemns that behavior in Leviticus 18.15, and verse 26, it points out that Judah, when, when he knew um, the, the situation, he didn't sleep with Tamar again. But Judah does say 
that Tamar is more righteous than him. Why is that the case? One reason could be that Tamar is the one pursuing justice here. Tamar is the one caring for the family here. Judah's not. With Ur and Onan dead, and Shelah, the third son, pledged to Tamar with no marriage in sight because of Judah, there's no prospect for this family uh, for children on the horizon. The first two sons are dead. The third's betrothed to a woman his dad has no intention on uh, marrying, on bringing about the marriage. So Judah's line could have died out if it wasn't for Tamar. Tamar's the one pursuing justice. Tamar is the one caring for the family. But also consider, Judah is the one who put her in this spot. He had the means to help her, but he blamed her for his son's deaths, and he left her to fend for herself. He failed to care for her and give her the child she was owed. And now, through her actions, thankfully, Judah sees his sin against her, and he publicly acknowledges it. God, through Tamar, this vulnerable, oppressed, probably Canaanite woman brings Judah to his senses. He finally protects her. Finally. He unknowingly impregnated her, but here he publicly admits his fault, thus saving her from death. This event here, it seems to humble him, as it should. He seems to be a changed man after this. Later in Genesis 44, when it looks like his brother Benjamin is going to be kept back in Egypt, Judah recognizes the pain that that would cause his father. Benjamin, um, Benjamin is Joseph's younger brother, the second born son to Rachel. Keep in mind, Jacob thought Joseph's dead. Benjamin's the only one left from his favorite wife. And so when it looks like Benjamin's going to be kept in Egypt, what does Judah do? He recognizes the pain that that would cause his dad, and he offers to take Benjamin's place. That's very different from the man in Genesis 37 and 38. In these chapters, he sells Joseph. He deceives his father into thinking Joseph was dead in spite of the pain that it caused him, and he fails to do right by Tamar. He's willing to let her suffer and be put in this vulnerable position when he had the means, the right, to do something about it. So the hateful, the uncompassionate, the selfish Judah seems to later become loving, compassionate, and selfless. It seems like genuine repentance. Over the course of time, it bore its fruit, it seems. So it turns out Having his sin exposed was the best thing in the world for Judah. Isn't it the same with us? It can be so hard to realize the weight of our sin. It can be so hard to come face to face with the ugly reality of the sin that we have committed, of who we are without Jesus. But we need to stop and realize that if the Lord is showing this to us, it's grace. It's the grace of God to us. For one, you can't be a Christian. You can't be right with God if this hasn't happened to you. If you have never seen your sin, if you've never owned up to your rebellion against God and then run to Jesus for grace and forgiveness, you don't know the Lord. So if we're going to know the Lord, this Judah-like moment has to happen to us. We have to see our sin be brought to our knees and come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. So that's grace if the Lord brings us to that place and saves us. And if that's you, again, today can be the day of salvation for you. Jesus is ready and willing to forgive you. All that he asks is that you come to him with nothing. Come to him with the empty hands of faith and trust him to forgive you and save you, he will. But it's important for us to see this as Christians too. God is preparing us for eternity with him. God is radically committed to making us more like Jesus. He will see it done. And that process is going to involve refinement. God will graciously reveal to us our sin and need so that we own up to our faults, so that we run to him for forgiveness and grace, 
so that we realize afresh that there's no true joy outside of his will, so that we learn over and over again that he is a good father who wants the best for us, who will care for us, who loves us. So don't resist the Lord when he shows you your sin. Instead, own it. Confess it and receive his forgiveness. Believe 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believe James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's, it's sheer mercy that God doesn't kill Judah. Onan is killed. Why? Onan is killed because he refuses to, to give Tamar the child she's owed. He takes advantage of her. He, he doesn't provide for his brother in giving him a deceased, he doesn't provide for his deceased brother in giving him a child. And he doesn't care for Tamar in, in, in fulfilling his duty toward her. And so God kills him for his behavior. Is what Judah does that much different? It's different to be sure, but it's not that much different he has the ability and the right to provide for her and to ensure that he's cared for, and he does nothing. He's willing to let her be oppressed and victimized, and he's willing to send her away. It is, it is sheer mercy that God doesn't kill this man. But God doesn't. God shows him mercy. God sustains his wrath from him. And God graciously exposes his sin through Tamar, who is a means of grace to the very person who oppressed her. And he, he, and he brings Judah, it seems, to a place of repentance. That's, that's just mercy to a man who doesn't deserve it. And so, although Judah fails to care for Tamar, God cares for Judah. And wonderfully, wonderfully, God cares for Tamar too. And that brings us to our last point, provision and hope. This is verses 27 to 30. In verses 27 to 30, we learn that Tamar is pregnant with twin boys. And their birth is really unusual. When Tamar's in labor, one child puts his hand out, uh, and the midwife ties a scarlet thread around his hand, presumably to be able to identify him later. But when he draws back his hand, the other brother comes out. Because of that, his name is Perez, which it means like breach. And because as the midwife said, what a breach you've made for yourself. And then the other brother, the one who has the scarlet thread around his hand, he's called Zerah. So God, he provides for Tamar, by giving her twin boys. He ensures that this family line would continue. What Judas failed to do, what Onan failed to do, God does. God cares for her. God provides for her. And it's not until later that we find out just how significant what God does here, uh, or, or it's not until later that we find out just how significant um, God's actions on behalf of Tamar really are. An early indication is in Genesis 49. There, Israel, or Jacob, blesses Judah, and he tells him the scepter wouldn't depart from his house. Kingship is going to come from him. Another indicator is in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth paints such uh, an, an, an encouraging picture compared to Genesis 38. Um, just, just listen to this. A, a foreigner, Ruth, She's married to an Israelite from Judah. Ruth's a Moabite. Tamar was likely a Canaanite. Tamar was married to Judah. Uh, Ruth was married to an Israelite from Judah. Well, Ruth's husband dies. Tamar's husband died. And Ruth leaves her homeland and she travels to the land of Judah where she meets a man named Boaz. And she eventually informs this man that he has the ability to redeem her. He can marry her and provide a child for his now deceased relative, her um, deceased husband. Uh, he can provide a child for that man through Ruth. That's so similar to what's going on in Genesis 38, right? Well, before Boaz can marry Ruth, there's another man. There's a closer relative who can do this for her, who can marry her. 
Boaz offers the op- that option to this man, but similarly to Onan, he refuses. He refuses. But Judah, or I'm sorry, but Boaz doesn't. Boaz does what's right, and he cares for Ruth. He marries her, and they have a child. Listen to how this is described in Ruth. Um, in, in Ruth, in, starting in verse 11, it says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that, will, that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then in verse 18 in chapter 4, there's a genealogy. It says, Now these are the generations of Perez. I think that's striking. I could have, why didn't that start with Abraham? It started with Perez. I, I, I would think that's intentional. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So, Judah and Tamar have Perez in Genesis 38. In Genesis 49, Judah's told that the scepter is not going to depart from his house. In Ruth, Boaz, a descendant of Perez, marries Ruth, and their union leads to a man named David, the great king of Israel. And we know that it doesn't stop there. The genealogy continues in Matthew 1, and there, Judah, Tamar, Perez, Boaz, and Ruth all make an appearance. They all show up in the genealogy of Jesus. God uses all of these individuals. He works through this dumpster fire of a text of this situation to eventually bring forth Jesus, the Messiah. Genesis 38, and even some of the chapters leading up to it, may lead us to ask, can anything good come from Israel? When we see how God shows his grace to Judah, when we see how God provides and cares for Tamar, when we see how God works through this family to bring about Jesus, we get the answer. Yes, yes, something good can come from Israel, and his name is Jesus. Jesus was not afraid to enter this mess. He was born into this family, but he was unstained by their sin. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He never sinned. As a spotless, sacrificial lamb, as a courageous, selfless redeemer, he died to save his people from their sins. And three days later, he rose victorious from the grave, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And because of all that, because all of that is true, we have a sure hope. We have a sure hope that God saves sinners. We have a sure hope that God can accomplish his God can accomplish his good purposes in and through our messed up lives. We have a sure hope that God works through our suffering for our good. We have a sure hope that God cares for us. He cares for the vulnerable and the oppressed. He sees, he knows. So as God's redeemed people, let's pursue justice for the oppressed. This is our duty. This is our responsibility. Let's care for the vulnerable. We must do this. Let's be honest about our sin and let's find mercy and grace to turn from our sin and trust Jesus to forgive us over and over and over again. Let's trust the Lord in every circumstance, in every situation, and let's rejoice. Let's leave here rejoicing that God saves sinners and that Jesus redeems messed up people like us and that Jesus, by his Spirit, every day, is transforming us more and more into his likeness. God is, God is good. God is, is good to us. There is just 
sin and injustice and mess in Genesis 38. And again, I would encourage you to take this afternoon, tonight, later in the week, whenever your groups meet, to talk about it. Talk about how we can better come alongside the oppressed, the vulnerable as a church. This chapter shows us the way forward when we see our sin. We must acknowledge it, repent of it, and seek God's grace and power to change. This text shows us Jesus. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our foundation. He is our sure hope. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your, for your grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that you would please do more than we can ask or think as we reflect on this chapter. Lord, I, I, do, I do pray that you would help this church to be a place that is safe for sufferers. Lord, we need your help to come alongside those who have been victimized, along those, alongside those who are hurting, along those, alongside those who have experienced trauma. We need your help to come alongside them, to hear them, to love them, to care for them, to be patient with them. Lord, so please help us. Lord, we need your, we need your help we need your help to continue to pursue Christ's likeness, to put off sin, to kill it so that it doesn't kill us. Please give us your grace. Lord, we need your help to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Jesus is our hope. Lord, please keep our eyes on him. Please keep our affections turned toward him. Lord, so help us as we, as we leave this place. Help us to, to go rejoicing in Jesus and go with eyes uh, opened, hearts opened, um, ready to care for the vulnerable, ready to put off our sin and ready to uh, uh, show off Jesus to our community. So please may, may it be done in Christ's name, amen.